appreciate the willingness to allow us to have sort of a family moment and I hope just getting to see that you're inspired and you get to see a little bit of what happens when nobody else is watching is I get asked all the time like especially by guys who want to go into ministry and they want to become pastors and it's like what's what, what's the secret what's the thing I need to know and a big part of it is community like if, especially for the young people in this room, if you don't have older people who you look to to shepherd you and help guide you into all that God has for you, you're in a really dangerous spot. The scripture says, with many advisors, victory is sure. It's amazing how many people got baptized and how God moved in their life happened through a relationship. We believe that's available to you here. And surrounding yourself with people who actually build you up into who you are in Christ is the reason why I'm able to stand up here every week and preach by the grace of God alone. People were getting baptized last week. I was like in tears thinking about these three men because I'm so grateful to be so loved and supported. And I'm not, I've said all day, I'm not going to cry because two of them have cried today. And if it's three out of four, then we have sort of a a dangerous elder board that's unstable. And so I've got to keep it even. Me and Chris Boer have stayed dead centered, not going to cry. All right. We've been in a season as a church called Wrecked by Grace. And I love it because we're talking about a true understanding of the grace of God delivering us into the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. And for far too many of us, I think the grace of God has become something that we have made in our image instead of understanding it as God gave it in the scriptures. Here's what I mean. Most of us, if not all of us, grew up, and if we heard a message about Jesus or the gospel, it began with this. Jesus died to save you from your sins. That's a true statement. But without a developed understanding of why Jesus had to do that, it's not really going to be meaningful for your life. So you're five, six, seven years old, and everybody around you in your church circles telling you Jesus died to save you, you're going, thanks, didn't know I needed it. But I love that there's a God who apparently exists and does favors for me without me asking. And without knowing it, subconsciously, what you start to do is you start to build a God in your image, in your mind. And you start to make a picture of God where he just does stuff that you want him to do without even even you asking. And then when he doesn't do something according to how you wanted it, that's how you catch up with him relationally. God, whoa, this is off a little bit. And you don't realize that that's happening because your worldview is off. The main thing I want to do with this series is give us what I like to call a gospel worldview. It means that the way you see the world is defined by these four lenses. Here they are. We'll put them on the screen. The glory of God the lostness of man, the mercy of our Savior, and the mission of the kingdom. This is, if you ask me, what does the gospel mean? I would say, listen, it's not a genre of music. It's a good genre of music, but that's not complete. And it's not, hey, Jesus died to save you. That's true, but it's not complete. The gospel is the message that God created the world to reflect his glory, and he created mankind to reflect his image perfectly. And God's so perfectly holy and glorious that when you combine the sinfulness of humanity with the glory of a holy God, you get hell. So two weeks ago was not comfortable. We talked about hell. We talked about punishment. We talked about wrath. I hated it. Like I've never hated preaching more than two weeks ago. I just want to get that Sunday out of the way. 
And it's not comfortable for us because one, I think we grow up not wanting to talk about it, not really believe that it's true. Like, why would the God that I believe in create something called hell? But what we're doing is we're reframing it. Hell is not a creation of those six days when God created the world. Hell is a condition that naturally results from the combination of a holy God and sinful humanity. The reason why human beings have to be separated from God and punished forever is because God is that holy and glorious and your sin is that costly. So if you don't have an understanding of that, it's no wonder the cross has a limited amount of effect on your life. Because you think, oh, Jesus just died for the things I do wrong. Jesus died for the condition that would have damned you forever. And I don't use language like that lightly. It bothers you. It bothers me to even say that. But I can see it on your faces that you're like, this kind of challenges my view of God a little bit. And two weeks ago, it was not easy to watch a lot of you in this space have to confront realities that you've never really had to confront about God. But in order to know what we've been saved for, we have to know what we've been saved from. And we have to know how much is at stake with whether or not the gospel goes out. And so when I make a statement like, People who never hear the gospel of Jesus, who live and die without ever hearing the name, they have enough knowledge of God to be separated from God forever. They don't go to heaven because they didn't hear about Jesus. They go to hell because they're guilty. Sinfulness, lostness is a condition. It's not, I did these bad things, God's mad. It's, you didn't ask to be born into a world where people are grabbed and thrown into cars at gas stations and taken away. God did not consult you and go, hey, what do you think about being born into a world where this is normal and this is normal? No, you're just born, and this just happens to be how messed up and broken our condition is. You have a condition. Call it hereditary if you want to. You inherited this. It's what original sin means, by the way. We are under a curse under Adam. But thanks be to God, we've been delivered from the curse of sin and death by the blood of Jesus. It's a big deal. Now, I want to go back to that statement about people who never hear the gospel. I say things like that on stage and I need to be a little more careful because I make flippant statements that I've been processing for years and we have a lot of young minds in this room and a lot of young believers who are like, wait, what? We believe what? And I expect you to kind of catch up really fast even though I have been processing this and reading my Bible for myself for a long time And some of you need to do the same. And there were a lot of questions that came out of two weeks ago in community groups. I want to encourage you, though, more than you pursue answers to your questions, pursue a relationship with God where he will reveal himself to you. Read this for yourself. Decide for yourself. Like, go, oh, my gosh, he is not who I thought he was. No, he's not. He's God. You made him in your own image based on how you grew up hearing about him. When you read the Bible and you take the shackles off of your own understanding of him and go, okay, who are you? Who does this... You, more times than not, will go, ah, you're different. Especially when you get to the cross, by the way. He is not some sort of image that we have conjured up. He is who he reveals himself to be. The stuff that's easy and fun to talk about and the stuff that's difficult. And the reason why I'm doing that is I legitimately want us to have a true understanding about grace. But I do want to apologize for that statement I made two weeks ago. It is true 
but you need to understand it for yourself. So I actually thought about preaching today from Romans chapter one and teaching you how the Bible teaches this about hell. And I was like, I just don't think that's where God's leading me. But then I found a sermon that's way better than any sermon I could ever preach. And so I'm gonna recommend it to you. Here's what I want you to do. If that statement bothered you, or if you just walked in today and you're like, wait, we're talking about what? I didn't know they did this at this church. Here's what you need to do. You need to go to radical.net. You need to look up the sermon, just got preached. What happens to people who never hear the gospel by David Platt? And you need, whoa, that's loud. Um, You need to just check out that sermon, let it hit you. Hopefully nobody got hit by a car out there, and that'll happen on your own time. So that's not what I'm going to talk about. This is actually going to be a more encouraging message. Everybody good? Everybody still with me? I know it's intense. Look at the person next to you. Say, I'm so glad I get to sit next to you through this really uncomfortable sermon. It's great. It's awesome. All right. I want to talk about what it means to be wrecked by grace. I like that phrase so much more than I like the phrase, I became a Christian. When you say I became a Christian, you're really saying, oh, this is the point in my life that I prayed to receive Christ, made Jesus Lord and Savior of my life. I agree with the teachings of Christianity. When you say I've been wrecked by grace, it's saying more than intellectual knowledge. It's saying my daily reality has been shattered by the love of God that has been shown to me by Jesus. The problem with a statement like wrecked is it implies change and impact. The grace of God by nature changes you completely. And I'm looking at a room, and I've been looking at a room all day loaded with people who the grace of God is not exactly what changes you. It's actually something that you use as your excuse for staying the same. You abuse the grace of God. God's graceful, so I can keep doing what I want to do, and then I'm going to catch up with the grace of God so much so that I feel better about the patterns that I'm stuck in rather than experiencing the fullness of what grace is. I I don't want this message to come across condemning in any way. I want it to come across as the good news that it is. Did you know that grace is so good that God doesn't just forgive you, he also delivers you into a new dimension of living? Grace is better than you think it is. If you stop at forgiveness, you have sold yourself so short of what God wanted to give you. It's not just forgiveness, it's deliverance. God does forgive you for all of your past sins, but grace is so powerful that he puts his spirit on the inside of us to welcome us into a way of daily living that's not stuck in the sinful, broken ways of our past, but set free to experience the fullness of life right here and right now, abundant life. Grace is that good. And so when you say I've been wrecked by grace, we've got a lot of people that love to say that. And I look at your life and I go, what exactly was wrecked? What was impacted? All that word grace did was make you feel better about what you've always done and what you're planning to continue to do. And I don't envy you. I feel bad for you. Because what you're looking for in all those old broken places is actually available in Jesus. And what you're going to find out today is that grace sets you free from the slavery of desiring anything else more than God. That's what I want to show you. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Come on, 1145, hold it up. Hold it up. Be spiritual. Hold it up. Hold it up. 
Love it, love it. Oh, man, this guy's, man, this guy's shaking his Bible. I love it. He's like ready for the single people Bible drill. Okay, everybody else who's not single, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Everybody else hold them up. Now, there are relationships blossoming from this moment. We got to be more intentional, though. There was literally a couple that posted a picture together, and their caption was, thank you for the Bible drill. Um, five seconds of shame-free staring, and then there will be a meeting in front of the Wreck by Grace wall at 6 p.m. before the 7. Cool? Second Peter chapter 1. Everybody turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. God's moving. It's powerful. We like to have fun here. I want to show you Second Peter chapter 1 because I think this is one of the most underrated short books of the Bible. This is the same Peter that was one of Jesus' closest disciples. At the end of his life, after spending his life building the church, he's about to die, and he writes this letter to the church as a warning for what's to come in the world, but also as an encouragement to hold on to faith in Jesus. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It's at the end of your Bible, like I said. If you're there, say, I'm there. You ready? Verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. There's a sermon right there. Do you guys know... Peter, the guy who like, built the early church, the guy who Jesus said, you are my rock. Your confession is what I'm going to build the church on. You know, this guy cussed out a little girl and denied Jesus the night before Jesus died. You know, the, you know right after the moment he confessed Jesus as Lord and Messiah, right after that, he tried to stop Jesus from saving the world, and Jesus called him Satan. You want to know why I like Peter? Peter reminds me of me and you. He's like that guy who God uses mightily who has nothing really special about him except for his own inconsistency. I say all that to say God can use you, even the person in the room who thinks they are least likely for God to do something special in and through your life. If God does this with this guy, I'm not disqualified, and neither are you because he's crazy. And this is him at the end of his life going, hey, it's me. I'm a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, well, if you can be, so can we. I love that. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, that's a line that you would usually read in your Bible and go, okay, get me to the letter. Like, tell me. That was just an intro. But Peter just told you something really big there. He says, hey, it's me, Peter, and I'm writing this to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. What does that mean? Read it. It means this letter is to Christians. So this letter is not written to someone who doesn't believe to prove that Jesus was real. This letter is not written to explain the connection between the law and the prophets and the Old Testament and Jesus. This is like, you're already in. You already believe Jesus is the Son of God. You, you, you have already signed over your life to follow him. I'm writing this to you. And here's what I have to say. Look at verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. If you have never read 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 before, you need to memorize it, you need to highlight it, you need to star it, you need to save it, because this is one of the most important promises in the entire Bible. Are you reading this? 
If you've been saved by Jesus, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Do you know what he just did? He just made 95% of your prayers unimportant. You've been given everything you need for a godly life. What do you pray every day? God, I just, I need this, I need this. You got it, it's already yours, already been given to you. Like we waste so much time asking for things that if we were aware of the promises of God, we would know you already have that. What you don't need to do is ask for it. What you need to do is believe and step as if you've already received it and it will be yours. The promises of God are always accessed by grace through faith. So he says, God's given you everything you need for a godly life through your knowledge of him who called you. Then he says this, the promises of God allow you to participate in the divine nature, to work it out. Somebody say, work it out. Listen, when you are saved by the grace of God, you are delivered from the life you used to have into a whole new dimension of living. The Bible calls it the divine nature or walking by the spirit. It means the power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives on the inside of you to empower you to live a supernatural, miraculous life, madly in love with Jesus and living the one life you were born to live and stepping into all of that the kingdom of God has to offer right here and right now. It's yours. It is yours. But then the qualifying statement, this is where I want to live. You ready? Having escaped, past tense, the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, and there's our problem. The reason why so few of us know a grace that supernaturally transforms our daily lives is because we've never accepted the original deliverance that was the purpose of our salvation in the first place. It's a deliverance not from evil behavior, but from evil desires. And when you read your Bible, you'll find out that that's actually the core problem Jesus came to solve. So you read James chapter four, James says, hey, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not evil desires that live on the inside of you? He's like, you think the problem is that you guys keep fighting, but the problem is that he wants that and she wants that and they want that and they don't know what to do with this burning longing that's on the inside of them. It's desire that's the problem. In Romans chapter one, one of the scariest chapters in the entire Bible, Paul talks about how God gives people over to the desires of their flesh and they are separated from God forever. That the problem, the, the, the problem that causes us to be punished by God forever is that we have these internal desires that we don't really know what to do with, and they separate us from God. We are driven by our affections. We're driven by desire. God made us that way. The problem is they've been totally distorted by sin, and it's not just James who says it. It's not just Paul who says it. It's not just Peter who says it. Jesus when you read Jesus' teaching all the time, he'll be like, yeah, 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 the external is not what's important. It's not what she did. It's not what he did. It's not the way you look. It's not the way you pray. That's not the problem. The problem is all of this evil on the inside of you that's defiled you from within. That's what you need to be saved from. And so here's why we have so few people that have been wrecked by grace. Y'all look up here and don't miss this. Because before Jesus can change your actions, he has to change your desires. And if you respond to the grace of God with a life that constantly tries to adjust your actions, you're going to end up as frustrated as you look right now. What have we been told? God changed you by his grace. So change your behavior. We do this now. We don't do this now. We're children of God. 
But you don't realize that beneath that behavior is a desire. That if God doesn't get a hold of that desire and replace it with something else, namely something better himself, you'll find yourself doing what I do so often and what so many of you are trapped in, which is what I like to call grace, abuse, and sin management. Grace, abuse, and sin management. It's when you get saved by grace, but you abuse that grace to continue to live parts of the life you used to have, just enough to give you that little hit on the side that'll make you feel good enough, but not enough to make you look like a fake in front of everybody that you told you were gonna be a Christian. So it's like, I still have these evil desires, and I can't, like, I can't fulfill them as publicly as I would have, but I'll, I'll, I'll take something from this. And we all have a different poison. I'll have a different thing that fills that gap. It doesn't matter if it's alcohol or sexual immorality or greed or envy or gossip. Like all of these things are just ways to go about filling that internal evil desire that we don't even really know how to explain how it got there because nobody taught you that. You just know that. Trust me, I have a two-year-old. You don't have to teach them. They know. You want to know, I, I love my daughter, Aniston. I give her a hard time so often from the stage I just want to tell you all about Aniston. Anybody ever seen Moana movie? You know the um, Tefiti, like the problem, the, the, the evil volcanic woman who's angry, but you find out at the end she really lost her heart and her heart makes her sweet and green? That's Aniston. That's what I would say. It's like when she's not herself, whoa. So, and then when she's herself, it's like, oh, you're so sweet and you're so great. I was watching this movie and I was like, Courtney, I found her daughter. Look. Um, and uh, I haven't told any service that today. And so I just want you to get to know that I do love the real her. It's the old her, the, the, the former her that needs to be redeemed by the grace of God. And she did not ask to act that way. She just knows. You just know. So what you and I need the grace of God to do, pay, pay very close attention. More than we need the grace of God to forgive us, we need the grace of God to give us new desires so that we see Jesus as more attractive than sin. People who are wrecked by grace find Jesus more compelling, more appealing than anything the created world has to offer. So from now on, whenever I say grace, don't immediately think forgiveness. Think deliverance. Many of you know that John Piper has impacted my theology, the way I see God, the way I relate to God a lot. And he's got this definition of grace that he kind of borrowed from St. Augustine in church history. And he defines it this way. Listen to this. He says, grace is God's giving us a sovereign joy in God that triumphs over the joy in sin. If any of us walked into this room and I handed you a microphone and said, what is the grace of God? I don't think any of us would say that. We go, God's grace is his willingness to forgive us and give us heaven forever. God's grace is his kindness. What if the, the root of grace is God going, here's what you used to find joy in, and I'm going to give you a superior joy in me and replace those desires on the inside, and that's what you really needed the most. I like that he calls it sovereign joy. That means that God has to give it. So here's my struggle with what I'm preaching right now. I'm trying so hard to make Jesus more appealing than anything the world has to offer you every week. That is literally the reason why I preach. Trying to paint a picture of living for God that looks more compelling than what the world has to offer. And you know, you know what's so frustrating is I'm realizing the more and more I read the Bible that I can't do that. If it's sovereign, then it has to be given by his hand. At the end of the day, you will always enjoy sin more than God until God sets your heart free. So honestly, 
we could end this sermon right now and we could just beg God to change your heart because if he doesn't, you'll always be the slave that you've been. I say that jokingly, but I'm like halfway serious. If you enjoy sin more than God, you need to get on your face before God and go, I don't want to be like this. Show me that you are more satisfying. Show me that you are more enjoyable. And when he wrecks that enjoyment with himself, your life will be different forever. Here's how he does it. One of our favorite verses, Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, says, "Delight, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that awesome? If you enjoy God, God will give you what you want, sort of. I used to read this and go, okay, all I got to do is delight in God and I'll get what I want. You want to know what this verse really means? It doesn't mean that God will give you what you want. It means God will give you new desires. He'll give you the desires of your heart, namely himself. And so it's not about negotiating. God, give me what I desire. God, tell me what to desire from within because without you, I'll desire the wrong thing. And how do you get it? By delighting in God. This is crazy. So the new way to change your behavior in the Christian life is for God to change your desire. And he says, the only way I can change your desire is if you intentionally enjoy me. If you start living a Christian life that's less focused on measuring how well you've obeyed God lately and more measured on how much have you enjoyed God lately, then you're going to start to choose him more than sin and it'll happen naturally. Take delight in the Lord. How do I do that? It means learning how to stir your heart's affections for God more than you allow the natural old self to want those things that bring poison and death. Like, enjoy God. I'm talking to a group of people that really doesn't get that. To a certain extent, our 7 o'clock service gets it, but 8 a.m., 10 a.m., 11.45 a.m., not really getting it. Here's what I mean. You come in here, and this is literally what the spiritual people in the room do. We start singing doxology. By the way, love that we pulled that one out. Powerful. Most of you who are into it, this is what you look like. Praise God. And it's like, praise God? Or pressure on you. Like, you don't look like you're taking pleasure in God. You look like you feel pressure and are trying to do something. We're tight. What if your new endeavor became, how much can I possibly enjoy God? And my affections have to be attached to that. Because your heart will always follow what you care about. What you think about will become what you care about. And what you care about will become what you do. How can you care about God if you never delight in him? What if your assignment as a Christian is to enjoy Jesus more than you enjoy anything else? And based on the way a lot of us respond corporately in worship. Now you might be here and be like, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm just not a hand raiser. I'm not the loud singer. I'm not. Okay. Here's why I don't buy that. If Auburn would have scored last night, I don't know what you would have done physically, but I don't think it would have been this. I really don't. You want to know why that that stuff comes naturally to you? Because that has your heart's affection. There's investment there. There's belonging there. That's who you are. So you didn't have to, if they would have scored, you wouldn't have to try to jump up and down and go roll tumors. Just would have been what you would have done. That's how Christianity works. What I am describing is called Christian hedonism. It means 
We do not pursue obligation and trying to obey God. We pursue enjoying God and obedience is the natural overflow. So God, please let me enjoy you. I'm not. I enjoy him. I enjoy her. I enjoy that. I enjoy this more than God. You can tell him that. But maybe if you started pursuing him as a means of enjoying him, the overflow of your life would become, man, this grace of God is so intoxicating because like I spend time with him and I get more energized by being with him than I get with what the world has to offer me. And guess what? I don't wake up the next morning and regret everything that I did. I wake up the next morning even more full and ready to multiply compound interest on my times with the Lord. And I'm just ready for more and I'm ready for more and I'm ready for more. And that's how I want to spend my life. This is what it means to be wrecked by the grace of God. We pursue pleasure in God, not pressure from God. And we do it daily. I promise we're almost done. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to counteract our deepest desires. And I'm going to put two things on the screen because I believe these two things are the things you're struggling with on the inside that compete for your desire for Jesus. Here they are. They are unfulfilled longings, and they are the illusion of comfort. If you're not careful... These two things will take the place of your personal desire for Jesus so fast. You still live in a sinful body, and although grace has transformed you, we will not be fully all that grace has made us until we're in the presence of God in eternity. So for now, you've got longings. You've got real things on the inside of you that go, I want to be filled by something. What do you do with that? And what do you do with the illusion of comfort? Our temptation is to try to build heaven on earth and create enough comfort around ourselves and our families to where life is as manageable as it can possibly be this side of heaven. And I'll still do it under the umbrella of being a Christian, but what you don't realize is the same comfort that you thought would set you free becomes the thing enslaving you from living by faith. And so we got to counteract these two things. Here's how we're going to do it. Number one, Replace your unfulfilled longings with the pursuit of better desires. Somebody say desires. That's what we're talking about. There's got to be a replacement. So, typical Christian response for what to do with a longing, a desire. Okay, that's not what God wants. So, I got to take that fire that, of desire that's on the inside of me and extinguish it somehow. I gotta suppress it. And that leads to grace, abuse, and sin management all over again. Because your method for suppressing it has to be feeding it. You realize that trying harder only, only, only makes the appetite for it greater. Trying harder to just, just make it without, no, it's willpower. But Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Where does the spirit of God come alive on the inside of you with the fire? where there's more of a fire burning with a natural desire for Jesus than there is with your old natural desires for sin. How does that happen? It happens by stopping pursuing this dutiful, I've got to not do this with, okay, I acknowledge this desire is there, but when that longing becomes so powerful, it tells me that I'm off because it tells me I'm not enjoying Jesus enough to overcome that. So what I don't need is more willpower. What I do need is to pursue joy in God again. I need to pray. I need to sing. I need to snap out of this, and I need to get back to enjoying God. What if the most healthy measure of how you and God are doing is this question? When is the last time you smiled in the presence of God? This is not going to be popular, but some of you need to know this. God created you to be happy, comma, in him. 
He created you to overflow with a joy, like a surpassing joy that comes from knowing him and him alone. You gotta pursue him like that so that you experience him like that. Your pursuit is too tactful. It's too, oh, I just gotta do this and I gotta make it through. And what you'll end up living is the life that I am currently experiencing, which is an inconsistent life. Some days your soul is hungry and thirsty for what the world has to offer and some days you're full and the people around you are really confused. My wife, my staff, they get so confused by me because there are some days I am the real me and I am in love with Jesus and I trust him and I'm ready to lead people. I'm ready to speak into people's lives. I'm ready to just hug somebody and remind them who they are in Christ. I'm ready to notice somebody that I wouldn't have noticed. I mean, I'm me. And the very next day, I am, get out of my way. Don't talk to me. I am doing work for God. (laughs) And that is like the biggest oxymoron in the world. And it's like, what is happening to me? The problem isn't, well, one day I did the right thing and one day I didn't. It's one day I filled my desire for God and the other day I did not. You have to learn how to stir your affections for God. And it's a replacement. It's a pursuit of something better. Fill me, Lord. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, make it your prayer tonight. God, show me that you're better. Show me that Jesus is better than sex that Jesus is better than alcohol, that he's better than money, that he's better than my kids getting their stuff together, that he's better, he's better, he's better. He'll show you. He is faithful to show his supremacy, trust me. Because then, this is how this connects to two weeks ago, because then it's about God's glory. If Jesus is supreme over everything, don't you think he wants to prove that to you? He wants to show you he's better. He knows he has no competition. You believe something is better because you've been blinded. Let the grace set you free. Make the replacement. Number two, ruin your illusion of comfort with the exercise of active faith. Y'all stay with me. This is going to cause you to think deeply. Ruin your illusion of comfort, because comfort's always an illusion. Nobody's promised tomorrow, with the exercise of active faith. Most of us, the last time we exercised faith was the moment we believed in Jesus. And here's how Peter continues this letter. He says, for this reason, verse five, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Everybody look up here. Don't miss this. That list is overwhelming. You're like, I got to do that. I got to do that. I got to do that. That's how you've been living your Christian life for too long. Don't do that. By the way, that's a literary vice that Peter is using just to go, and this, and this, and this. He doesn't literally want you to take notes and go, okay, do this, and then do this. Notice what he said at the beginning. Add to your faith. You can't add to a faith that's never been established at all. Faith is the ruining of comfort because it is the space where Jesus has to prove something or you're done for. So if you're going to add to your faith, it doesn't begin with this, okay, I've got to do something. It begins with, when's the last time you trusted Jesus enough for him to actually have to show you that he's better? Some of you... You have no opportunity in your entire life for Jesus to show you how awesome he is simply because you've pursued comfort so much that it kicks him out of ever having to do anything. Y'all, faith is so annoying, but it's so awesome. You're following Jesus and he's like, let's go this way. I don't wanna go that way. And you go that way and you go, I'm so glad we went this way. 
He's like, that's why I'm Lord. He's like, hey, uh, have this conversation. No, 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 do not wanna have that conversation at all. You have the conversation, oh yeah, this is the life I was created to live, aimed at other people. Thank you. He's like, I know. Your life has no room for Jesus to show you how much of an adventure it is for you to follow him. This is gonna hurt because you're not following him. You're telling him to follow you. Grace will wreck you because it takes you out of the driver's seat. And you go, okay, I don't know where we're going. I trust you though. I just wanna encourage everybody in this room to do something before the end of the year that involves crazy faith. We always relinquish back into comfort. And I'll be honest with you, it's been a long time for me. Five years ago, I could preach this sermon all day. We were starting a church with nothing, moved here, didn't know hardly anybody. I mean, it was like faith. And I think back to that season now, and I'm like, yes, I found out Jesus was real. I believed he was real when I read this, but I found out for myself when I stepped based on what I know to be true about his character. Now, five years in, all I'm tempted to do is shrink back and go, oh, we've kind of established some things now. Let's make this thing comfortable. And God's like, nope, keep getting uncomfortable. Call them to this. And I'm like, I don't want to do that because if you don't come through, it won't happen. And Jesus is like, it's exactly how I want you to live your life. Then you'll experience me and go, I don't, I don't want anything but him. And so my final question to you, will you put your life in a position where if Jesus is actually who he says he is, he can actually prove it? Or are you going to spend the rest of your life shutting him out because you wanted to pursue comfort and settle into mediocrity? That's the question. Let's be wrecked by grace. Can we do that? Stand up all over this room. You can put your notes away. We're going to sing a song about how much better Jesus is. And every time that we've gotten to sing this this morning, I have been about to jump out of my seat with joy in God. Can I just tell you to enjoy God? You got like seven minutes left in this room. Wouldn't it be awesome if you actually smiled in God's presence for once in your life? Wouldn't it be amazing if church was not a place that you're like, okay, I did the thing and sat through the service and have to move on. But you were like, I met with God today and he's actually happy with me. Can we not make this into your dutiful, bound up? Okay, we're gonna sing a song now. Do whatever you wanna do. You wanna sing loud, you can sing loud. You wanna just smile, you wanna just read the words. It's not about the physical response, but it is about your heart. Let's bow our heads all over this room. If you're here today and you'd say, Miles, I have not been enjoying Jesus. I've been living and relating to God on the basis of what I need to do, not based on a fullness of affection that comes from knowing him. And I want to experience him as satisfying. I want to experience that Jesus is better. If that's where you've been living and my hand is already raised, would you just raise your hand all over this place? I wanna pray for you. Take a physical step by faith. Doesn't that feel good to just say, God, here I am. Father, I pray you see these hands and I pray you reward the faith being demonstrated in this moment. God, we're saying we want to desire you and if we're honest, there are many times we don't. But in this moment, let us enjoy you. Let us experience a grace that far exceeds our expectations and let us leave this place overflowing in praise. We love you. We give you this time. We ask you to come and move in Jesus' name.